Section 1, Chapter 1 of Trail of the Hawk. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Section 1, Chapter 1. The Adventure of Youth. Carl Erickson was being naughty. Probably no boy in Jor Lemon was being naughtier that October Saturday afternoon. He had not half finished the woodpiling, which was his punishment for having chased the family rooster thirteen times squawking around the chicken-yard while playing soldiers with Benny Rusk. He stood in the middle of the musty woodshed, pessimistically kicking at the scattered wood. His face was stern, as became a man of eight who was a soldier of fortune, famed from the front gate to the chicken-yard. An unromantic film of dirt did the fact that his Scandinavian cheeks were like cream-colored silk, stained with rose petals. A baby Norseman, with only an average boy's prettiness, yet with the whiteness and slenderness of a girl's little finger. A backyard boy, a baggy jacket and trousers, gingham blouse and cap, whose lining oozed back over his ash-blonde hair, which was tangled now like trampled grass, with a tiny chip riding grotesquely on one flossy lock. The darkness of the shed displeased Carl. The whole basic conception of work bored him. The sticks of wood were personal enemies to which he gave insulting names. He had always admired the hard bark and metallic resonance of the ironwood, but he hated the poplar. Popple, it is called in Lemon, Minnesota. Poplar becomes dry and dusty, and the bark turns to a monstrously mottled and evil greenish-white. Carl announced to one pauper stick, "'I could lick you.' "'I'm a general, I am.' The stick made no reply, whatever, and he contemptuously shied it out into the chickweed, which matted the grubby backyard. This necessitated his sneaking out and capturing it by stalking it from the rear, lest it rouse the popple army." He loitered outside the shed, sniffing at the smoke from burning leaves, the scent of autumn and migration and wanderlust. He glanced down between houses to the reedy shore of Jorlemon Lake. The surface of the water was smooth and tinted like a bluebell, save for one patch in the current where wavelets slipped with October madness in sparkles of diamond fire. Across the lake, wood sprinkled with gold dust and paprika broke the sweep of sparse yellow stubble, and a red barn was softly brilliant in the caressing sunlight and lively air of the Minnesota prairie. Over there was the field of valor, where grown-up men with shiny shotguns went hunting prairie chickens. The great world, leading clear to the Red River Valley in Canada. Three mallard ducks, with necks far out and wings beating hurriedly, shot over Carl's head. From far off a gunshot floated, echoing through the forest hollows. In the waiting stillness sounded a rooster's crow, distant, magical. "'I want to go hunting,' mourned Carl, as he trailed back into the woodshed. It seemed darker than ever and smelled of moldy chips. He bounced like an enraged chipmunk. His phlegmatic china-blue eyes filled with tears. "'Won't pile no more wood,' he declared. Naughty he undoubtedly was. But since he knew that his father, Oscar Erickson, the carpenter, all knuckles and patched overalls and bad temper, would probably whip him for rebellion, he may have acquired merit. 
He did not even look toward the house to see whether his mother was watching him. His farm-bred, worried, kindly, small-flat-chested, pinched-nosed, bleached, twangy-voiced, plucky Norwegian mother. He marched to the workshop and brought a collection of miscellaneous nails and screws out to the bare patch of earth in front of the chicken-yard. They were the nail people, the most reckless band of mercenaries the world has ever known, led by General Doorhinge, who was somewhat inclined to collapse in the middle, but possessed of the unusual virtue of eyes in both ends of him. He had explored the deepest canyons of the woodshed, and victoriously led his tenpenny warriors against the sumacs in the empty space beyond Irving Lamb's house. Carl marshaled the nail people, sticking them upright in the ground. After reasoning sternly with an intruding sparrow, thus did the dauntless General Doorhinge address them. "'Men, there's an awful big army against us, but let's die like men, my men. Forwards!' As the veteran finished, a devastating fire of stones infiltrated the company, and one by one they fell, save for the commander himself, who bowed his grizzled, wrought-steel head and sobbed, "'Ah, oh, the brave boys done their duty!' From across the lake rolled another gunshot. Carl dug his grimy fingers into the earth. "'Jiminy! I wished I was out hunting. Why can't I never go? I guess I'll pile the wood, but I'm going to go seek my fortune after that.' Since Carl Erickson, some day to be known as Hawk Erickson, was the divinely restless seeker of the romance that must, or we die, lie beyond the hills, you first see him in action. Find him in the year 1893, aged eight, leading revolutions in the backyard. But equally, since this is a serious study of an average young American, there should be an indication of his soil-nourished ancestry. Carl was a second-generation Norwegian. American-born, American in speech, American in appearance, save for his flaxen hair and china-blue eyes, and, thanks to the flag-decked public school, overwhelmingly American in tradition. When he was born, the typical Americans of earlier stocks had moved to city palaces or were marooned on run-down farms. It was Carl Erickson, not a Tobridge or a Stuyvesant or Lee or a Grant, who was the typical American of his period. It was for him to carry on the American destiny of extending the western horizon, his to restore the wintry pilgrim virtues and the exuberant October partridge-drumming days of Daniel Boone, then to add in his own or another generation new American aspirations for beauty. They are the new Yankees, these Scandinavians of Wisconsin and Minnesota and the Dakotas, with a human breed that can grow and a thousand miles to grow in. The foreign-born parents, when they first came to the northern Middle West, huddle in unpainted farmhouses with grassless dooryards and fly-whizzing kitchens and smelly dairies, set on treeless, shadeless, unsoftened leagues of prairie or bunched in new clearings ragged with small stumps. First generation are alien and forlorn. The echoing fjords of Torneum and the moors of Finmark have clipped their imaginations silenced their laughter, hidden with ice their real tenderness. In America, they go sedulously to the bare Lutheran church and frequently drink ninety percent alcohol. They are also heroes and have been the makers of a new land, from the days of the Indian raids and oxen teams and hillside dugouts to now, 
repeating in their patient hewing the history of the Western Reserve. In one generation, or even in one decade, they emerge from the desolation of being foreigners. They and the Germans pay Yankee mortgages with blood and sweat. They swiftly master politics, voting for honesty rather than handshakes. They make keen, scrupulously honest business deals, send their children to school, accumulate land, one section or two sections, or move to town to keep shop, and ply skilled tools, become Methodists and Congregationalists, are neighborly with Yankee manufacturers and doctors and teachers, and in one generation or less, are completely American. So it was with Carl Erickson. His carpenter father had come from Norway by way of steerage and a farm in Wisconsin, changing his name from Erickson. Erickson, senior, owned his cottage, and, though he still said, I've been going, he talked as naturally of his own American tariff and his own Norwegian-American governor as though he had five generations of Connecticut or Virginia ancestry. Now it was Carl's to go on to seek the flowering. Unconscious that he was the heir apparent of the age, but decidedly conscious that the woodshed was dark, Carl finished the pile. From the step of the woodshed, he regarded the world with plentitive boredom. Irving, he called. No answer from Irving, the next-door boy. The village was rustlingly quiet. Carl skipped slowly and unhappily to the group of box elders beside the workshop and stuck his fingernails into the cobwebby crevices of the black bark. He made overtures for company on any terms to a robin, a woolly worm, and a large blue fly, but they all scorned his advances, and when he yelled an ingratiating invitation to a passing dog, seemed to swallow its tail and ears as it galloped off. No one else appeared. Before the kitchen window he quavered, Mama! In the kitchen the muffled pounding of a flat iron upon the padded ironing board. Ma! Mrs. Erickson's whitey yellow hair, pale eyes, and small nervous features were shadowed behind the cotton curtains. Well, she said, I haven't got nothing to do. Go pile the wood. Piled piles of it. Then go and play. Been playing. Then play some more. Ain't got nobody to play with. Then find somebody. But don't you step one step out of this yard. I don't see why I can't go out of the yard. Because I said so. Again the sound of the flat iron. Carl invented a game in which he was to run in circles, but not step on the grass. He made the tenth inspection that day of the drying hazelnuts whose husks were turning to seal brown on the woodshed roof. He hunted for a good new bottle to throw at Irving Lamb's barn. He mended his catapult. He perched on a bench and watched the street. Nothing passed. Nothing made an interesting rattling except one wagon. From over the water another gunshot murmured of distant hazards. Carl jumped down from the bench and marched deliberately out of the yard along Oak Street toward the hill, the smart section of Jorleman, where live in exclusive state five large houses that get painted nearly every year. Going to seek my fortune. Going to find Benny and go swimming, he vowed calmly as Napoleon defying his marshals. General Collar disregarded the sordid facts that it was too late in the year to go swimming, and that Benjamin Franklin Rusk couldn't swim. Anyway, 
he clumped along, planting his feet with spats of dust. Very dignified and melancholy, but, like all small boys, occasionally going mad and running in chase of nothing at all till he found it. He stopped before the house with mysterious shudders. Carl had never made believe fairies or princes. Rather, he was in the secret world of boyhood, a soldier, a trapper, or a swig brakeman on the M and D R. But he was bespelled by the suggestion of grandeur in the iron fence and gracious trees and dark carriage shed of the house with shutters. It was a large, square, solid brick structure, set among oaks and sinister pines, once the home, or perhaps a mansion, of Banker Whitley, but unoccupied for years. Leaves rotted before the deserted carriage shed. The disregarded steps in front were seamed with shallow pools of water for days after a rain. The windows had always been darkened, but not by broad-slatted outside shutters smeared with house-paint, to which stuck tiny black hairs from the paintbrush, like the ordinary houses of Jerusalem. Instead, these windows were masked with inside shutters, haughtily varnished to a hard, refined brown. Today the windows were open, the shutters folded, furniture was being moved in, and just inside the iron gate a frilly little girl was playing with a whitewashed conch shell. She must have been about ten at the time, since Carl was eight. She was a very dressy and complacent child, possessed not only of a clean white muslin with three rows of tucks, immaculate bronze boots, and a green tam but also of a large hair ribbon, a ribbon sash, and a silver chain with a large gold-washed heart-shaped locket. She was softly plump, softly gentle of face, softly brown of hair, and softly pleasant of speech. Hello said she. Hello. What's your name, little boy? I ain't a little boy. I'm Carl Erickson. Oh, are you? I'm... I'm going to have a shotgun when I'm fifteen, he shyly hurled a stone at a telegraph pole to prove that he was not shy. My name is Greddy Cowles. I came from Minneapolis. My mama owns part of the Jolman flour mill. Are you a nice boy? We just moved here, and I don't know anybody. Maybe my mamma will let me play with you if you are a nice boy. I'd just soon come play with you if you play soldiers. My pa's the smartest man in Jorman. He builded Alex Johnson's house. He's got a gun. Oh, my mamma's a widow. Carl hung by his arms from the gate pickets while she breathed. Mmm, my, in admiration at the feet. Ain't nothing. I can hang by my knees on a trapeze. What'd you come from Minneapolis for? We're going to live here, she said. Oh. I went to the Chicago World's Fair with my mama this summer. I didn't. I did so. And I saw a teeny engine so small it was in a walnut shell, and you had to look at it through a magnifying glass, and it kept on running like anything. Eh, that's nothing. Ben Risk... He went to the World's Fair, too, and he saw a statue that was bigger than our house and all pure gold. You didn't see that. I did so, and we got cousins in Chicago, and we stayed with them, and Cousin Edgar is a very prominent doctor for Einier and Stomach. Uh, ben Ruskpaw is a doctor, too, and he's got a brother what's going to be a sturgeon. I got a brother. He's a year older than me. 
His name is Ray. There's lots more people in Minneapolis than here in Jorlman. There's a hundred thousand people in Minneapolis. Ain't none. My pa was born in Christina in the old country, and there's a million, million people there. Oh, there is not. Honest, there is. Is there honest? Gertie was admiring now. He looked patronizingly at the red plush furniture which was being splendidly carried into the great house from Jordan's tray, an old friend of Carl's which had often carried him banging through town. He condescended. Jimmy, you don't know Benny Rusk or nobody, do you? I'll bring him and we can play soldiers, and we can make tents out of carpets. Did you ever run through carpets on the line? He pointed to the row of rugs and carpets airing beside the carriage shed. No, is, is it fun? Yeah, it's awful scary, but I ain't afraid. He dashed at the carpet and entered their long, narrow tent. To tell the truth, when he stepped from the sunshine into the intense darkness, he was slightly afraid. The Erickson's one carpet made a short passage, but to pass on and on and throw on through this succession of heavy rug mats, where snakes and poisonous insects might hide, and where the rough-threaded gritty undersurfaces scratched his pushing hands, was fearsome. He emerged with a whoop and encouraged her to try the feet. She peeped inside the first carpet, but withdrew her head, giving homage. Oh, it's so dark in there, where you went. He promptly performed the feat again. As they wandered back to the gate to watch the furniture man, Gertie tried to regain the superiority due her years by remarking of a large escritoire which was being juggled into the front door. My papa bought that desk in Chicago. Carl broke in. I'll bring Benny Rusk and me and him. We'll teach you to play soldiers. My mama don't think I ought to play games. I've got a lot of dolls, but I'm too old for dolls. I play authors with mama sometimes, and dominoes. Authors is a very nice game. But maybe your ma will let you play Indian squaw, and me and Benny will tie you to a stake and scalp you. That won't be rough like soldiers. But I'm going to be a really, truly soldier. I'm going to be an officer in the army. I got a cousin that's an officer in the army, Gertie said grandly, bringing her yellow ribbon braid around over her shoulder and gently brushing her lips with the end. Cross your heart? Uh-huh. Cross your heart and hope to die if you ain't. Honest. He's an officer. Jiminy Crickets. Say, Gertie, could he make me an officer? Let's go find him. Does he live near here? Oh, no. He's way off in San Francisco. Come on, let's go there. You and me. Gee, I like you. You got an awful pretty dress. Tain't polite to compliment me to my face, Mama says. Come on, let's go. We're going. No, I'd like to, she faltered, but my Mama wouldn't let me. She don't let me play round with boys anyway. She's in the house now. Besides, it's way far off across the sea to San Francisco. It's beyond the salt sea where the Mormons live. And they all got seven wives. Beyond Sully, like Christina? Ah, taint. It's in America, because Mr. Lamb went there last winter. Besides, even if he was across the sea, couldn't we go and be stowaways like the younger brothers and all them? And little Lord Fauntleroy? He went and was a lord, and he wasn't nothing but an orphan. My ma read me about him, only she didn't talk English very good, but we'll go stowaways. 
he wound up triumphantly. Gertrude! A high-pitched voice from the house. Gertie glowered at a tall, meager woman with a long green-and-white apron over a most respectable black alpaca gown. Her nose was large, her complexion dull, but she carried herself so commandingly as to be almost handsome and very formidable. Oh, dear! Gertie stomped her foot. Now I got to go in. I never can have any fun. Goodbye, Carl. He urgently interrupted her tragic farewell. Say, gee, Willard, I know what we'll do. You sneak out the back door, and I'll meet you, and we'll run away and go seek our fortunes, and we'll find our your cousin. Gertrude! From the house. Yes, Mama. I'm just coming. To Carl. Besides, I'm older than you, and I'm most grown up, and I don't believe in Santa Claus. And once I taught the infants class at St. Christendom's Sunday School when the teacher wasn't there. Anyway, I and Miss Bessie did, and I asked them most all the questions about the trumpets and pitchers, so I couldn't run away. I'm too old. Gertrude! Come here this instant! Come on, I'll be waiting, Carl demanded. She was gone. She was being ushered into the house of mysterious shutters by Mrs. Cowles. Carl prowled down the street, a fine, new, long stick at his side like a saber. He rounded the block and waited behind the Cowles' carriage shed, doing sentry-go and planning the number of parrots and pieces of eight he would bring back from San Francisco. Then his father and mother would be sorry they talked about him in Norwegian. Carl! Gertie was running around the corner of the carriage shed. Oh, Carl, I just had to come out and see you again. But I can't go seek our fortunes with you, because they've got the piano moved in now, and i got to practice. Else I'll grow up be just an ignorant common person, and besides, there's going to be tea biscuits and honey for supper. I saw the honey. He smartly swung his saber to his shoulder, ordering, Come on! Gertie edged forward, perplexedly, sucking a finger joint, and followed him along Lake Street, toward open country. They took the Minnesota and Dakota Railway track, a natural footpath in a land where the trains were few and not fast, as was the condition of the single-tracked M&D of 1893. In a worried manner, Carl inquired whether San Francisco was northwest or southeast, the direction in which ran all self-respecting railways. Gertie blandly declared that it lay to the northwest, and northwest they started toward the swamps and the first forest of the big woods. He had wonderlands to show her along the track. To him, every detail was of scientific importance. He knew intimately the topography of the fields beside the track, in which corner of Tubbs pasture between the track and the lake the scraggly wild clover grew, and down what part of the gravel bank it was most exciting to roll, as far along the track as the arch. Each railway tie, or sleeper, had for him a personality. The fat white tie, which oozed at the end into an awkward knob, he had always hated because it resembled a flattened grub. A new tamarack tie, with a piece of fresh bark still on it, recently put in by the section gang, was an entertaining stranger, and he particularly introduced Gertrude to his favorite, a wine-colored tie which always smiled. Gertie, though noblesse oblige, compelled her to be gracious to the imprisoned ties writhing under the steel rails. 
did not really show much enthusiasm till he led her to the justly celebrated arch. Even then she boasted of Minnehaha Falls and Fort Snelling and Lake Calhoun, but upon his grieved solicitation declared that, after all, the Twin Cities had nothing to compare with the arch, a sandstone tunnel full twenty feet high miraculously boring through the railway embankment, and faced with great stones which you could descend by lowering yourself from stone to stone. Through the arch ran the creek, with rare minnows in its pools, while important paths led from the creek to a wilderness of hazelnut bushes. He taught her to tear the drying husk from the nuts and crack the nuts with stones. At his request, Gertie produced two pins from unexpected parts of her small frilly dress. He found a piece of string, and they fished for perch in the creek. As they had no bait whatever, their success was not large flock of ducks flew low above them, seeking a pond for the night. "'Jiminy!' Carl cried. "'It's getting late. We got to hurry. It's all for fur to San Francisco, and I don't know, gee, where we'll sleep tonight. We had not to go on, had we?' "'Yeah, come on.'" End of chapter 1